Hey, good morning. It's good to be with you guys again. I'm grateful for the opportunity to open God's Word with you and uh, and to worship with you this morning. I uh, brought my family this time, and so uh, they're glad to be here as well. Uh, and we'd love to get to know you if we haven't met you after the service. Uh, love to be able to hear what God's doing in your life. Uh, we're going to start um, a short series uh, for the month of February on knowing God. So I'd invite you to open up to um, Psalm 119. Uh, Psalm 119, if you have your Bible. Otherwise, it's printed for you in the in the worship bulletin. And could I ask you to stand one more time out of reverence for God's Word? Psalm 119, 1 through 8. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In February, uh, what we're going to do is work through uh, just a short series. It's kind of like a topical series on the idea of knowing God. Uh, Sam read a quote from A.W. Tozer. He was a 20th century pastor and spiritual writer. And he wrote, uh, it's printed for you in the, the, the beginning of the worship folder. He said, what come, comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Uh, the whole idea of studying God, what theologians call sort of the characteristics or attributes of God, that might thrill some of you. You might be excited to be here this morning uh, because you sort of love theology and you're sort of the nerdy type. And I resonate with you. Uh, I can I, I can sort of I can dig that. I'm 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 I love the theology. I love reading theology. But for others of you, I suspect. Uh, theology or the study of God or even just hearing the idea of like the attributes of God uh, sounds maybe to you useless or boring at best. Uh, you've got work deadlines, people's expectations, house projects, kids' practices, uh, schoolwork that you're trying to get through. Um, a, a, a host of different things could be on your mind. The last thing that could be on your mind is the attributes of God. It sounds remote. It can sound removed from where you are right now. Uh, I'm not going to try to persuade you right now um, of the relevance of knowing the real God, but let me suggest that whenever life is hard, uh, when it feels like our emotions and our hearts are spinning out of control uh, in things like anger or worry or anxiety or, or fear or just feeling kind of low and depressed, uh, one of the likely roots, one of the likely roots, not the only root, but one of the likely roots is that we are forgetting who God is, or perhaps we've never actually known or met the real God. Uh, that means, I'm going to make the case to you over the next couple of weeks, that knowing God, knowing the God of the Bible, knowing the real God, there's nothing more relevant, nothing more practical in all the world than that. 
So today we're going to look at the longest chapter in the Bible. Uh, hopefully, I'm hoping it won't be the longest sermon you've ever heard, but we're just going to look at the first uh, eight verses of Psalm 119. There's 176 verses in all. We're just looking at the first eight. But if you read the psalm in its entirety, if you sit down, uh, this, is, this will be a challenge to you at some point in your life. Sit down and read all of Psalm 119 in its entirety. You come to see that the poet is talking primarily about God's word, uh, what we might call today the Bible, the Old and New Testaments. Um, he doesn't have the New Testament. He probably didn't have most of the Old Testament. Uh, but he's referring to God's word as we find it in the scripture. Uh, a lot of people think that this may have been David, we don't know, who wrote this psalm, uh, King David. He was one of the famous poets of the nation of Israel. Um, and he probably only had the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy, uh, what, what scholars call the Pentateuch. But he had a deep love, as you read Psalm 119, you come to find out, you come to discover that he had a deep love for those writings because he knew something about them. He knew something crucial about them that they were God's revelation to humanity about who God is and what he does. They were God's speech to us. They were God's truth for you, for your life. So this morning what I want to do is I want to look at two questions from Psalm 119, uh, and, then we'll, and then we'll jump in. So the, the first question is this, what is truth? And then the second question we're going to look at is, how do you use that truth? How do you use that truth in your life? So the first question is, what is truth? Uh, Psalm 119, I'm going to give you a little bit of a, a kind of a background, but Psalm 119 is what scholars call an alphabet acrostic. And some of you, uh, you know, you're not poets, you didn't major in English, so I'm going to kind of break this down. There are other Psalms in the Bible that use this form, this acrostic uh, form. It's it's the, the structure of the, of the poem is... Uh, the beginning, the beginning word starts with the same letter and the poet moves down and continues on each, each line, each, each stanza of the poem. He begins with the same letter or maybe a different letter in sequential order. And Psalm 119, there are other poems like this in the Bible that use this acrostic, alphabet acrostic form. Psalm 119 is the most developed of them all. It's the largest, it's the longest, it's the most intricate and precise. And what that means is that there are 22 letters. You see it if you have even an English Bible. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And there are 22 stanzas of Psalm 119. And each of those stanzas corresponds to one of the, one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, and then each stanza is made up of eight lines. So there's 22 stanzas. There will be a quiz on this afterwards. 22 stanzas eight lines in each stanza or each verse of poetry and each of those lines begins with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet that's assigned to that stanza. It doesn't come through well in the English but in the Hebrew you can see it very, very clearly. Every single line starting with what we might call the letter A, Aleph in your Bibles if you have it. Every line of that first stanza starts with the letter A. And that might be somewhat interesting to you. It might not be. You could probably care less, some of you. But what many have suggested about that is that that alphabetic form hints at one of the central teachings about God's truth, and that's this, that what we have in the Bible, what we have in the scriptures in the Old and New Testament, 
is what the Apostle Peter says in the New Testament. He says, we have in the Bible all things that are required for life and godliness. That's 2 Peter chapter 1. That we have in the, in the scriptures all things that are necessary for life and godliness. You might say that we have the A to Z of everything that God thinks that we need to know as it pertains to salvation, about who we fundamentally are, about the ultimate questions of life. All of those things are answered in the Bible. And part of, so the question is, what is God's truth? What is the truth that God gives us? Part of the genius of what makes Psalm 119 um, so brilliant, but at the same time so challenging for, I think, modern day Western readers, is, is the poet in Psalm 119 is very slow. He's very methodical. He's contemplative. He, he sort of describes and meditates on God's word. God's truth in a roundabout way. He's not in a rush, but he prefers savoring and meditating on the scriptures. And he does that by the repetitive use of eight nouns or eight synonyms to describe God's word or God's truth. And you can see all of them mostly in verses one through eight, and then in a couple verses of nine and 11. So in verse one of Psalm 119, you see the word law. And then in verse two, he describes God's word as, uh, uh, as his testimonies. Verse 4, God's precepts. Verse 5, statutes. Verse 6, commandments. Verse 7, his righteous rules. And then in verse 9 and 11, you have the words word and promise. Now what the poet is doing, and so what he does is he takes all of those synonyms and in every single stanza, in all 22 stanzas, of Psalm 119, he uses those over and over again. And to our, like, to our modern ears, it sounds repetitive and dull, but what he is doing in a slow and methodical way is showing, he's showing how you can look at scripture from different angles. It's what a jeweler might do with a precious gem or a diamond. He's seeing the multifaceted beauty of God's truth to us. And he's able to do that partly because he's living in a culture that doesn't prioritize busyness and impatience and the direct route, right? We, we, I don't go to Google Maps to find the, the roundabout way, the scenic route to get to my destination. I want the shortest, most direct, what will get me there the fastest. And this poet is not living in that kind of a culture. He's living in a different culture that prefers things slow and contemplative and roundabout. Uh, but what this poet is inviting us to do, I think, is to slow down and begin to savor God's truth. So what I want to do in the next just few minutes here is look at some of those synonyms uh, in Psalm 119 and see what they have to say to us today. The first one that he uses in, is in verse 1, and he says that God's word, he says, um, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Psalm 119 says that God's truth is the law of the Lord. And he uses that word for law. The Hebrew word is the Torah. And predominantly in scripture, that's a word that's used to reference the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, Genesis to Deuteronomy. Now, what's interesting, but also slightly confusing, is uh, is 
his use of that word. It's confusing for English speakers because, I think, when we hear the word law, it makes us think of rules and speed limits and penal codes. But if you read Genesis to Deuteronomy, what this poet is referring to, uh, what he viewed as the Torah, the law, you know that in those books, there's far more than just codes and rules. There's history, there's poems, there's prophetic or oracles. It's not just law codes. So what is the poet referring to by referring to God's law as Torah, the law? He's saying, in effect, he's saying that all of God's truth, all of God's word must be believed and obeyed. Any time that God says something in his word that's to be believed and obeyed, it's as if God's law is coming to us. It's coming to us with authority. It's absolutely authoritative. It's a non-negotiable in the Christian life. See, God's truth isn't, it's not optional. It's not just a polite suggestion. That's what God's truth is. It comes to us with the authority of God himself. You can't pick and choose the bits that you enjoy or the parts that you feel are right and leave out all the rest. It's all authoritative. It all must be obeyed. Uh, now, I think we all need to be reminded that the doctrine that God's truth is authoritative, uh, that it's a law to be believed and obeyed, is something that in our culture, uh, particularly in this moment, is radically politically incorrect. See, if you are, let me make the case to you, if you, are, if you are public with the claim that God is love, you won't get any pushback. No one will cancel you if you say God is a God of love, but the moment that you say God is a God of truth, and that truth comes to you with absolute authority, that his, that his law must be obeyed, that it must be believed, well, you know as well as I do, that, that claim is 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 remarkably politically incorrect. It's polarizing. That to some people would be classified as hate speech. You won't get retweets, you won't get likes for saying that God is a God of truth. You will be labeled as perhaps harmful or toxic or fundamentalist. So the question is, if you're trying to live in this cultural moment, if you're trying to follow Jesus and believe and obey God in all of his truth, why would you do that? That comes at extraordinary cost. So why follow God's law? Why follow his truth? Do you just obey that out of some sort of blind faith or some sort of martyr complex or just to be contrarian uh, to what everybody else is doing? No, because it's not just God's law. It's not, his truth is not just a law. It's also a statute. That's in verse five. God's word is a statute. And that word, statute, hints at the idea that God's truth is engraven. It's carved into something that's fixed. Uh, it's inscribed as a witness forever. That's kind of how the Old Testament viewed the idea of a statute. It would be something of permanence, something that lasted forever. Now that's important because what is valued today in our culture What's valued right now is dismissed as naive tomorrow. Isn't that right? That's true on the micro level. Things, fads on social media, uh, fashion, my kids' toys, what I got them last Christmas will be in the trash uh, by Christmas 2021. But it's also true on the macro level, right? I mean, human cultures, 
uh, philosophies, governments tend to progress, and then they tend to become obsolete. And what I think this poet is saying to us is saying, if you fix your life, if you fix your heart and your mind and your value system in this current cultural moment, then when that becomes obsolete, when that passes away, so do you. Your values become obsolete. The things that you've placed your trust and your hopes in become obsolete. And the only way to do that, the only way to avoid that reality is by rooting your, your life, your heart, your mind into something that's fixed, a statute that's engraven, a truth that's permanent and transcendent. And that's what God's word is. That's what his truth is. So God's truth is a law. It's authoritative. It's a statute. It's eternal. It's fixed. It's forever. It's engraven. But it's also a precept. That's verse 4. And that's an interesting word if you look at verse 4. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. The idea of a precept is basically a detailed requirement from someone with official oversight. It's drawn from the language of an official who's tasked with something who's who's tasked with something and he's his his goal or his or her goal is to look into a into a situation and act on that situation. Uh, they're to look into the details of something and then propose or legislate some action. Now, I think that idea that you know you have an official or an overseer who's tasked with looking into something and then prescribing a recommendation or a prescription is a very familiar concept to all of us. Um, but I imagine it's a concept that for many of us, we might resist it. Uh, Carl was praying, right, for this pandemic that we've been in for a long time. And uh, I, don't, I don't think this is an arguable case, but I think many of you might agree that we've been in a pandemic in which uh, the officials that have been tasked with looking into that situation coming up with recommendations and prescriptions uh, seem to kind of change the story and change the protocol and change the regulation. And that happens over and over again. And part of that is because they find out new facts, uh, new things that they c- comes to light and they have to change what they uh, decide to do. Others, others, it might be because of political pressure or something like that. But there seems to be almost no consistency at times, uh, no concern for maybe unintended consequences. And that, I think, can be both extremely deflating but also infuriating. But what if you had an official that you could count on? A person that you knew to be wise, just, fair, a person of integrity, but also someone who had all the facts. There were not going to be any surprises uh, that would come to light that would change their course of action. It would be easier to trust that person. And what the poet is saying in Psalm 119 is, You and I have a maker. We have a creator. And he knows all the facts about you. He knows all of the facts of created reality because he made them. And if he makes a precept, if he gives you a prescription, facts about you, it's not because he's some domineering authoritarian. It's because actually he knows what's best. He knows how the human machine operates to its fullest capacity. He knows what makes humanity flourish. So when God says, this is how you treat your neighbor, this is what marriage is, this is how you look at your money, this is how you care for my world, this is how the church should operate, 
that's a precept, friends, that you can trust. Because God made you. He knows everything about you and the world that he's put you in. It's meant to make you happy. Those precepts are designed so that you and I might flourish. And here's the thing. And see, this is the the reality that he doesn't get into in in these first uh, eight verses. But uh, it's a truth that's, that's explained and spelled out throughout the pages of the Bible. If God's precepts aren't your authority, if you're not banking your life, and your heart, and your family, and your relationships on God's precepts, if those aren't your authority, then something else will be dictating how you think, how you live, what you value. And I think it's sad, friends, I think many of you would agree that we're living in a time where, especially the church in North America, is being exposed as more concerned with the precepts of politicians on the right and the left, with influencers, with media pundits, with conspiracies, than with God himself. We're more interested in the precepts of other people uh, than the precepts of God. And yet he's the one who knows us best. He's the one who loves us best. So Psalm 119 is all about God's truth, God's revelation to us. It's his, as I've said, his authoritative law that we should believe, that we must, we must believe and obey. It's his wise prescription for how to live a happy and flourishing life. That's what Psalm 119 opens with. Blessed, happy are those whose way is blameless. We've only scratched the surface there, but uh, there's a ton more that we could look at. But the next question is, how do we, if that's what God's truth is, the question is, how do we use that truth in our life? How do we use that truth in our life? First, we need to see the source of the truth. We need to see the source of the truth, and that's the Lord. Part of, read, part of the challenge of reading Psalm 119 is that we tend to misunderstand and misread some of the terms, terms like law and statute. And therefore, the psalm comes across to us, we hear the psalm, as kind of an exaltation of a set of abstract rules. It's almost like this poet is uh, some kind of legalist goody-two-shoes who's saying just what they're saying to impress the teacher. I love the rules. I love the law. And I think many of us hear that and we're sort of like, this guy's nuts, dude. Like, there's no way. Uh, sort of a guy who's just uh, praising following the rules. Uh, I, I mean, that may work for you. It, does, it, doesn't, it, might, it doesn't work for me. But look at verse 3. Uh, he says in verse 3, The happy ones, the blessed ones, are the ones who walk in God's ways. They walk in God's ways. Now, that's interesting, that phrase there, God's ways. You see, God's word, his truth, isn't just a command. It's not just a list of to-dos that you can kind of check off. It's not just making sure you read your Bible and say your prayers in the morning. It's actually an expression. God's truth, his word, is an expression of his character, of who he fundamentally is, of his nature. See, God's word is a revelation of who he is. And so we don't study it to get smarter or to get our life uh, right or to be happy or, or to get our doctrine truer. We walk in the ways of the scripture because the end, the purpose, is to get to know God himself. See, God has given us his truth so that we can know him, so that we can be in a relationship with him. Uh, If you've been in a serious relationship with someone, you know what this is like. 
Uh, when you meet someone and you hit it off with that person, uh, and you're interested in that person, what do you do? You study them. Uh, you learn their ways. You learn what their likes and their dislikes are. You find out what their favorite restaurant is and you make reservations. You discover what their favorite band is and you buy tickets. Your heart is single-mindedly focused and driven by your attraction to that person. And that study of them is not a burden. It's, uh, it's not a chore. It's actually a delight. You relish in that, right? You see, this poet is devoted not to just following God's truth, but actually delighting in God's truth. Delighting, relishing in God's word. How did that happen? How in the world can someone like you and I even begin to live as he, as he says he does blamelessly? How in, how in the world can you and I look at a verse like verse 6 and say, I, I want to experience a life free of shame. But the reality is shame is exactly what I feel when I consider God's commands. I haven't kept them. I haven't delighted in them. And when I have, it's with mixed motives. So if you're there today and you feel sort of this, I don't even, I don't even know what the first step is. I don't even know what the first step of delighting in God's word, in his law, and his commands is. But I want to live a life of integrity. I want to live a shame-free life. Um... I want to live a, a life of free of hypocrisy, a life that is upright. Then, friend, you're in the right spot. If you feel that you need that and you don't have it, you're in the right spot. See, you need to see that the God of truth is the Lord. We often skip over this, but in verse 1, the poet uses the very special, unique name of God. It's Lord, but spelled in capital letters. See, this was the covenant name of God. It's the name that he gave to Israel when he rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. What God did was he initiated, he began a covenant, a relationship with Israel, not because they were religious or successful or attractive, but merely because he loved them. And the Lord promised to maintain that relationship with his people in spite of their cold hearts, in spite of their mess, in spite of their shame, and rebellion. And so when the poet of Psalm 119 expresses a delight in God's truth, it's because he knows that he has, he has been and forever will be delighted in by God. How did he know that? Well, for Old Testament Israel, for this poet, um, they had the Ark of the Covenant. If you know the book of Exodus really well, or if you've seen uh, uh, the first installment of the Indiana Jones series, you know that this was a piece of furniture in the temple. It was a gold-plated box that housed a copy of God's law, his statutes, his testimonies, uh, his precepts. Those were put in the box, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark was said to be the throne of God. It was a visual way of saying God's word isn't just a list of moral codes, but it's an expression of God's character, of, his, uh, of who he is, of his nature. But on top of this ark was a lid, and every year uh, that the top of the ark, the high priest would go into the temple, and he would sprinkle uh, the blood of a substitutionary sacrificial animal on the ark of that, uh, on the on the lid of the ark of the covenant. And it was a reminder that while God's law is true and good, people, you and I, are not good. We what we need is is a substitute. We need a sacrifice. We need unmerited, unasked for 
unearned grace. And so the Ark of the Covenant itself, this box, was uh, of uh, it was an embodiment of both God's law, a perfect expression of his character, but also his grace. Uh, atoning mercy um, at the throne of God himself. See, friends, the poet of Psalm 119 had an ark, had a box, had a gold-plated box. But, friends, we have something that's so much better. We have Jesus himself. See, Jesus was the fullest expression of God. He was God come in the flesh. And at the very core of Jesus' DNA, the very center of who he was and is, was a delight in God's truth. It was this Jesus who led an utterly blameless life. He did no wrong. He was the only person who could, who could truly say that I have done no wrong. He loved God with his whole heart and he loved his neighbor to the fullest. And yet this Jesus also at the same, tie, same time offered himself as a sacrifice for sinners. He became an object of scorn and shame. Paul says in, in, in Corinthians that he who knew no sin became sin for us. See, Jesus endured the worst fear of the poet in verse 8. The poet says in verse 8, do not utterly forsake me. But Jesus, friends, Jesus on the cross was utterly forsaken. He was utterly abandoned. Why was that? It was so that you and I could be blameless. We could stand before God's presence blameless. He did that so that our hearts could be made upright, so that we could be made whole, not by anything you or I do, but as a free gift. So in closing here, you see the delight and love for this poet, for the God of the Bible, the God of truth, the Lord himself, could only come after he saw how much God loved him. It could only come after he witnessed the costly judgments of God. That's... That's verse 7. The righteous rules there are actually God's judgments. And friends, when you've seen that, when you've experienced that God has taken your sin and judged it at the cross of Jesus and declared you in that same moment righteous and blameless and whole and upright, once you experience that truth, you will know what it's like to delight in a God who delights in you. And what the psalm says is you will ultimately never be put to shame. You will never be abandoned. How do you utilize that? How do you utilize that truth in your life? Well, you recognize that a heart of love, a heart that loves God, a heart that loves other people can only come once you've recognized and experienced the love that Jesus has for you, the love that he showed you. We love because he first loved us. Amen. Let's 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 close in prayer as we come to the table. Heavenly Father, you are a God of truth. You've given us your law. It's to be obeyed. It's to be believed. Uh, it's a statute that's uh, that's engraven forever in the heavens. It's fixed in the heavens. And Father, we we confess, we admit to you that we fall far far short of your precepts. Uh, we do not love you with a whole heart. We do not love our neighbor as ourself. So how can we delight in your law? We confess these things to you, and yet we know that you have given us Jesus, who is the embodiment, the, the perfect expression of your righteous character, and yet at the exact same time, the place that we find mercy. 
the place where we find forgiveness, the place where we find grace. So Father, fix our eyes on him again as we come to the table. Remind us of his great love for us. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.